so I was down in the office uh, the other day, and I picked up a book with a catchy title, What Do You Think of Me? Why Do I Care? by Ed Welch. And I skimmed it, and I found a central theme uh, that he uses, life's big questions, which he says are, who is God, who am I, and who are these other people? Um, and he goes on to address uh, the, the, those questions in various contexts uh, with an attitude of fear. How do I think of God? How do I think of myself? How do I think of others? Uh, with an attitude of pride or with love, how do I think about those things? Uh, the passage that we have today uh, from Ephesians, and I'm going to focus on verses 7 through 12. Pastor Todd preached on verses 3 through 6 last week. While touching on the first and the third questions about who God is and who other people are, really, I think it focuses on who I am or who we are um, in relationship to God. Pastor Todd preached through this book of Ephesians a couple of years ago, and I'm like most of you, uh, I remember almost nothing uh, from all those months of uh, wonderful preaching. Uh, but w- one thing, at least, did stick. Uh, he talked about how the indicative precedes the imperative. That is, what is true about God and what's true about us, we have to get that right before we try to do what we are told, before uh, we try to uh, implement further instruction or admonition. And so in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are the indicative, who we are as children of Christ, um, and what it means to be God's chosen sons and daughters. I'm married. Some of you know this, um, and many of you might wonder how I was able to con someone like Emily into marrying me. Um, I wonder that too, but it happened, so I'm going to stick with it. Um, We had a really beautiful wedding. The ceremony uh, was in the same church that my grandparents got married in uh, almost 50 years before us in San Antonio, Texas. It's really cool. We had flowers to decorate, and everyone was dressed up, of course. We had uh, about 200 guests at the ceremony, um, and we had organ music and hymns, and of course, uh, a homily uh, or a sermon given by our, our pastor who had counseled us through our relationship and into marriage, and of course, our vows. But I've learned that despite all of those beautiful things, the one moment that everyone really likes, especially women, Uh, There's one moment in a wedding, especially in the wedding ceremony, that everyone looks for. Do you guys know what that is? Do you know what it is? The kiss? Close. Before that. When the bride comes in. That single moment. The instant the bride breaks through the doorway, and you look at the groom. And you you look to see the look on his face. Because it tells you what kind of love they have. And some might even say that it's indicative of their relationship. I get it. I love Emily. And I cried. (laughs) And my brother, uh, he, my best man, uh, he pulled out some paper towels that he had grabbed just for that moment. It wasn't only her beauty, which was magnificent. And it wasn't only just sort of the moment Uh, which was huge. It was the two and a half years of our relationship leading up to that. It was the display of our love. It was the longing and waiting for our unification. 
And it was the public consecration and our commitment to each other. It was, it was all the hopes and dreams that we had together. It was all of that. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, to marry all things in him. But because of sin, we underestimate God's love for us. We don't live like that. We don't live in light of the status that we've been given. This happens in a couple key points uh, in the process of our salvation. It happens in how we understand our justification, and it happens in how we understand our status and our inheritance. So I'm going to talk about those two things. So first, our, our justification. We, we misunderstand our justification. One way this happens is by minimizing our need for it. We may have prayed the sinner's prayer. We may have repented at one time. But we proceed to live as if we didn't really need it all that much. I mean, yes, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad, right? We actually do pretty well. You know, we we get by. In the youth group, uh, we're using a book on Wednesday nights called The Enemy Within. And in it, the author, Chris Lundgaard, he points out that many people come to terms, or they try to come to terms with their sin. They act as if some sort of ceasefire uh, exists between, between me and sin. It's like this agreement, okay, sin, I won't try to be perfect as long as you don't get me in too much trouble, okay? We have a deal there. But in reality, our residual sin and the devil are attacking us day and night, never ceasing, always trying to tempt us into denial of our Lord, or better yet, complacency. So when you get really mad and lose your temper at your kids or your spouse or that ridiculous driver over there, (laughs) you can just say, oops, that wasn't very nice. Well, Jesus forgave me. Maybe that won't happen next time. It's a lot easier to think that way. Not to make a huge deal out of every little sin that happens in our lives. On the one hand, yes, we don't need to be incapacitated by every instance of sin. But it's not because our sin isn't grave. It's only because our salvation is so powerful. We have to take our, our sin seriously and to fight it seriously. We've been given new hearts a new set of loves, and we're to seek after them with passion and vigor because that's how we have been loved. Christ loved us with passion and vigor and sacrifice unto death. Theologians use the term substitutionary atonement. Our sin is serious enough to require someone to be killed as a substitute for us in order to atone for our sin, to clear the debt. God the Father chose a bride for his son. But that bride had to be bought from the slave owner of death. So Jesus died for his beloved, his betrothed, his unfaithful lover. It was ugly and necessary. But through it, we're no longer ugly. We're no longer ugly. We are beautiful. And the groom delights in us 
more than we could ever understand. We're tempted to think that we aren't all that bad, but we delude ourselves. We were that bad. We were that ugly. And it was a big, big deal to be purchased out of our sin. Verse 7 again. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Sometimes we try to minimize our need for our justification. Another way that we misunderstand our justification is not by minimizing our need, but by ignoring the means of our justification. By living like Jesus, life and death and resurrection aren't enough. We keep a secret record of our sins, sort of a a side account that, that we can take care of on our own. It's kind of ridiculous, but, but we kind of do this. Uh, we say and read and sing all the time about God's perfect, infinite knowledge, but yet we really act as if we can keep a little corner of our lives hidden away from God. It's almost as if we're saying, yes, God Almighty, welcome to my heart home. Uh, yes, oh, of course, you're welcome anytime. Oh, that? Oh, that's just my closet. You, you don't want to go in there. It's kind of a mess right now. But don't worry, I have a plan, and I'm going to have it perfectly spick and span in just, you know, a year or two. Uh, why don't you go hang out on the patio where all my Christian, friend, uh, where all my Christian friends are? <laughs> we try to hide a little part of ourselves that we think that we can redeem on our own, that we don't need Jesus to wash. Um, sometimes this works itself out in my life where I, I feel like, I have to get to a certain point of competency before I can confess that sin, uh, where I feel like I need, to, I need to get it sort of like to where it's not that bad, and, and then I can present it to Jesus, or even more so, you know, tell my Christian friends about it, tell my pastors about it. It's like, well, I used to sin, but I've pretty much got it under control now, so we're good. We live like that. We pretend like Jesus isn't enough. And that we can cover some of our issues on our own. That's not how it is. Another way that this can kind of work out that's a little bit different is is perhaps you have an area of your life that you just keep for yourself because you deserve that little mini kingdom. Sometimes I say things, or I think, or rather my actions say things like, I deserve to be right about this point. In this argument, I deserve to be right. Or, I deserve to make fun of my friends or my wife and point out just how foolish and silly they are. I deserve that. Or, I deserve to just sit here and watch this TV show or this movie or something else inappropriate because I've worked hard today. I deserve that. I don't deserve any of that. I don't deserve my own little kingdom. I deserve death. As we just prayed a few minutes ago, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Friends, our perception of our righteousness can get so skewed. What we deserve and what we need are all messed up. We we misunderstand our justification. And so we miss the Savior. But don't worry. Even if you get that part kind of right, even if you don't get hung up there, there are still other issues that we can have. You ready? (laughs) 
not only did Christ redeem us from our transgressions, furthermore, he's given us a new status of a rich and infinite inheritance. Last week, Pastor Todd talked about this in terms of adoption. We've been welcomed as adopted, cherished sons and daughters. We can also think of it like a marriage, as Paul does later in Ephesians chapter 5. Either way, we're now part of God's family. God didn't just stop at loving us. Uh, Sorry, he didn't just stop at saving us from death. But we are now honored and adored children, like Jesus, through Jesus. We have the same status as, as Brandon shared with the children. And not only did he save us, but he loves us. And we are heirs to his family. Let me extend this idea of marriage for a minute. When I married Emily, her parents became my parents. And mine became hers. We became in-laws. By the law, according to the legal system, we are now part of the same family. I'm part of her family. And I have a right to that inheritance because we, Emily and I, are united as one person. Everything that applied to her now applies to me. And I actually got to experience this firsthand. In 2011, sadly, Emily's granny passed away. But just before she did, she made sure that all of her family members got a monetary gift. Because I married Emily, I got one too. I didn't grow up with her as my granny. I didn't remember all the summers at her farm. I didn't remember the Christmases and the Thanksgivings and her wonderful pot roasts and her banana, uh, her banana pudding, right? <laughs> but because of my relationship with Emily, I received that blessing, that blessing of inheritance. And really, it's terrible, all the negative connotations that we have regarding in-laws. Oh, in-laws <laughs> because it's one of the most wonderful relationships that we can have and if we are married to Christ if we're united to Christ in a similar way then every blessing and every gift that belongs to the son of God belongs to us acceptance love being delighted in hope the knowledge of a good God with a perfect plan, power over sin, power over death, eternal life, righteousness, freedom, and not least of all, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And yet, we resist this for some reason. Sometimes we're too proud and we want to deny that we need it, that we can get by on our own, or we're too ashamed and refuse to believe that such a thing could be true for me. Think about it in sort of earthly terms. Think how silly would it be if I decided to take that gift from Emily's grandmother and burn it because I didn't really belong in the family. Or if I decided that a real man makes his own money in the world and so I'm not going to take this gift. Or if I hid it under my bed or something until I get to the point, until I reach some... uh, some terms or some stipulations that I come up with, that I just hide that gift and don't accept it. That'd be silly, right? It's a gift. Why wouldn't I want to receive it? 
There's a movie that was popular when I was in college that has a, a very insightful scene. Uh, there's a married couple and then an unmarried couple, and um, they're, they're friends, and, and uh, the, the women are, are relatives. And, but both of their relationships are, are a mess. And so the men uh, take a weekend and go to Vegas. They get away, and um, after a night of, of going to a show, they get back in the hotel room, and, and the husband says to the other guy, he says, Do you ever wonder how someone can even like you? <laughs> Debbie loves me. Debbie likes me. She loves me. The biggest problem in our marriage is that she likes me. She wants me around. She loves me so much, she wants me around all the time. That's our biggest problem. And I can't accept that. That, that upsets me. I don't think I can accept her love. There's something wrong with me. And the other guy responds. He says, you can't accept love. The most beautiful, shiny, warmy thing in all the earth. She's chosen to give her life to you. She's picked you as her life partner. But you play fantasy baseball because you can't accept love. (laughs) Debbie wants to give her life to you. And Allison doesn't want to give her life to me. And it makes me sad all day long. Let's go home, they say. And the husband is right. Something is wrong with him. That he can't accept love. But the thing is, he's not the only one. Maybe, maybe you can accept love from other people, but maybe you have a hard time accepting it from God. Often we can feel paralyzed by fear or pride, and they keep us from living in the truth. The truth. But God can heal our hearts from anything. It's true from the first moment of our justification, from the moment of becoming saved, of becoming a Christian, and it's true every day afterward. Through faith and repentance, we can live united to Christ with the joy of every spiritual blessing. Let's look again at the text. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice the language in there. We are richly lavished with grace. God has a plan. He has a will. And we are given the wisdom and the insight, the secret knowledge of his, and the mystery of his will. And that will is to unite us and everything in heaven and on earth to and through Christ. We are united, married to Jesus, and through him, we inherit the rest of the Trinity. What's so strange is that while simultaneously resisting this love and acceptance, we also long for it. In the book that I mentioned earlier, What Do You Think About Me and Why Do I Care? Ed Welch talks about how we innately desire relationships. But while we like to think of them as symmetrical Reciprocal relationships where I like you and you like me 
we sort of had this exchange going. Really what we want is for someone else to like us a little bit more than we like them. We want them to need us just a little bit. Um, and that's because we're broken. We're insecure and we're prideful. And we want to receive love more than we're able and willing to give it. God is different. God doesn't need us to love him. He doesn't need us to worship him. He's content in himself. He's so content that each part of the Trinity loves the other, and they all decided to share it with us. And so all that love just flows out and splashes all over us, filling us up with God joy and God love and God worship. We enter the Trinity by unity in Christ, we get to be delighted in, like the Father delights in Jesus. We get to feel the work of God by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We get to brag about our Heavenly Father, about his perfection and majesty, just like Jesus does. In this unity, we find our purpose. Look at verse 12 real quick. Verse 12, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Do you see that? Our new purpose is to glorify God like Jesus does. And we do. We do because Jesus does. Because Jesus glorifies God and we are united with him, then we glorify God. We enter into that relationship that's our ultimate goal, our telos, our reason for being. However, the blessing isn't only for us individually. It's also as a community. In fact, some might say that we should think of it primarily in terms of community and not individually, but I don't want to get hung up there. The point is that the blessings overflow from us to the world. We are a part of this relationship so much and God's love flows into and through us so much that we are able to share that with the rest of the world. We are the fulfillment of the Abrahamic blessing that he was blessed and he would be given a nation to bless all the other nations. It sounds really great, doesn't it? <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to live there, though. But the thing is that there's no, there's no secret there's no trick. The secret is just Jesus. We just have to take him. We have to rest in him. And what would it look like if we did? What if we just accepted how much God loves us and took hold of the inheritance and the relationship that we have with him through Jesus, through the Christ? What if we were honest about our sins and didn't try to hide some of them away, or we didn't minimize them and pretend that they're not so bad? What if we were empowered by the Spirit to be able to give love more than we needed it? I think that the second half of Ephesians is just about that. It's the imperative, how we should live. If we were to read it, we would see, maybe go home this afternoon and read through it, and you'll see, that relationships are harmonious. Parents love children without wearing them out and without the parents getting worn out. 
Husbands, serve wives with the utmost admiration and care and sacrifice. And wives, love husbands with honor and respect. And slaves and masters seek to dignify each other. We get people who walk, as it says in chapter 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of peace. Races are reconciled. Social classes don't matter anymore. Who you were and who I was don't matter anymore because we are one in Christ. We get the true unified church. And we, the church, we are that bride waiting at the altar. No. We are the bride who enters the door. (laughs) And Jesus is the groom waiting at the altar. And regardless of how well you've believed this, maybe maybe you, you get this, and maybe you have faith like Abraham. Or maybe you're more like me, and it's more like you're barely hanging on to the hem of his cloak. And some days you're just not sure that you can make it. But it doesn't really matter what we do because it's Christ who secures us. Because at the end of the day, at the end of all days, when you come through the doorway at the final wedding ceremony, he will look at you and tears will flood his eyes because his father chose you. And he made you beautiful by dying for you through his suffering. And he wants to spend all of eternity with you, his bride, his church. Jesus is the means of blessing. God set forth the plan But Jesus is the means of blessing. He is the mediator of God's fullness and love and mercy and righteousness. And we receive it. We are receivers. We receive it through relationship with him. And we are inextricably, inextricably grafted into the overflowing love such that our earthly life is renewed. And we have a new purpose. And that purpose is to delight and glor- delight in and glorify God before a watching world and for all eternity. That's all there is. There's no secret. There's just Jesus. There's only repentance. And we are filled with his goodness. And we are filled with his blessings and his faith and his righteousness. So my friends, rest in that. Be okay with being loved. Let's pray.